All right, so this morning we are continuing our series through the book of Jonah. And a uh, quick plug, just because we're so excited for it. Next week, Anita Columbara is going to be teaching us uh, to wrap up our series on Jonah. She's typically downstairs teaching the high schoolers. She's doing that now. But she's going to be here doing that with us. Um, so excited for that. You don't want to miss that. Make sure you're here. Last week, while we were at Camp Out, Jack keyed in on God's call to Jonah to arise, right? We were at the beach. In the course of the story, the whale has just vomited Jonah onto the beach. And so we're there, and then he talks about arising, getting up. What's God calling you into for this next year? And so in many ways, that was, that was the call of the sermon. It's a great question. It's, um, it's worth reflecting on. What might God be up to? What might God be calling you to rise into? It's a great question to reflect on. In many ways, today's sermon is going to call us to a similar type of self-reflection. Where we end up will be different, but the introspection, the sense of engagement is still a carryover from last week. And so today we're going to examine three observations from the book of Jonah that show how Jonah might speak to us in our present day. And then we'll follow that up with one more connection to tie all the, uh, the ends together. So to start, we've highlighted in different ways since the start of our series, Jonah is more than a children's story. In some ways, if you've grown up in the church, we've kind of been inoculated to the weight of the words, right? It it just kind of goes past us. If you don't believe me, try this today. I did this this morning. After service, ask one of our children, or ask a couple, what's the story of Jonah all about? And my bet is that 90% of them would quickly say something along the lines of, it's about Jonah and the whale, or Jonah and the big fish. Jonah spending time three days in the belly of the fish. Try it out and see. Find out. Preferably ask your own kid, but um, you can ask around. There's plenty here. <laughs> I did it this morning, and true to the stats, uh, we were almost at 90% true on this. One kid, and this is a direct quote, said, I know, Star Wars. And I was like, <laughs> okay, we're on the fence here. I think that's a yes. I don't know. So, that's the general sense that's happening, right? We, we carry that from a young age if we've grown up in the church, and that's what colors this book for us. It's been distilled down to a story about a man and a fish. But quick Jonah fact for you. Did you know that Jonah mentions the fish for a grand total of three times in the book? Just three times. Alternatively, God is mentioned 14 times. The Lord is mentioned 21 times. And sackcloth, that garment that we just read about, the one that you put on, that the Ninevites put on, it's the garb of repentance, it's mentioned three times, just as many times as the fish. So we don't have stories just about sackcloth, right? But the fish, that's what colors our story here. It's not wrong to highlight the importance of Jonah and the fish. But there's so much more to the story than that little episode. 
And so much more than being a story about a big fish, Jonah is a story about forgiveness. It's a story about grace. It's a story about how God's people should live in the world. And it tells it in a very unique way. So how does the book of Jonah get its message through to us? How does it speak to us? How does it get its message to us? When I was in college, I went on a um, study abroad trip to Israel, and we did a whole bunch of things. It was a pretty packed schedule. So when we were on our tourist days, we really had to keep, uh, keep a tight schedule for that. And so if you've ever been on a group trip, everyone knows there's that one guy, the straggler, every time, everywhere you go, he's late, never meets the, the cutoff dates or the cutoff times. And so we were at the Jordan River, and everyone was on the bus except for this one guy. We'll call him Straggler. And so we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and eventually we saw him, (laughs) and he's barreling around this corner. Like, he turns this corner, and he's just hauling, right? His backpack is going left and right. He's holding his hat, and he has his souvenir, and he's running, just sprinting to the bus. So we're like, all right, he's... He's great. He's going to be here. Hope he doesn't trip. He makes it to the bus, and when he finally gets to the bus, the first thing he says is, y'all, I'm sorry. I would have been here on time, but there were all these foreigners in front of me. And then someone at the back of the bus yells, buddy, what are you? And in this moment, it's like time stood still. His eyes opened up. He was like, whoa, deer in the headlights. It was the first time he had ever realized the world doesn't revolve around him, right? That the world doesn't revolve around his country. It doesn't revolve around his language, his skin tone. He wasn't in America anymore. His first time out of the country, and this was an earth-shattering moment for him. And there's three things that make this story even better. First... You know what he had just done in the Jordan River? He had just been baptized, reborn into the family of faith. Like, you couldn't make this up. He's baptized in the very place that Jesus is baptized, making a public declaration of his faith that he is joining with people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe who claim Christ as Lord. And within the hour, He's complaining about foreigners holding him up in line while he's in Israel. It's comical. Second, the bin he grabbed his souvenir map from, because he couldn't read, it was not in English, and he waited in line, it wasn't marked that way. So he finally takes out the map, he shows it to a friend, and it's in Russian. Dead serious. The map that he waited in line for was in Russian. But third, most importantly, at the end of the trip, and this is the most important part, when everyone debriefed and shared what is a meaningful moment from you or for you from this trip, fair play to this guy. He had the humility, the fortitude, the self-awareness to say that this moment, like more than any of the sites we had seen, more than any, we, we were in the garden. We took communion in the garden of Gethsemane. More than that, he said, this moment 
was the highlight of the trip for him because once he got past his embarrassment, once he recognized the absurdity, the shock, the irony of everything that had just happened, it allowed him to start seeing how wide God's kingdom is and how, how small his theology was. He had a come-to-Jesus moment, and it wasn't in the Jordan River. It was weeks later when he was able to reflect on his privilege, his position, his theological worldview, and all of that was put into perspective. In similar ways, the book of Jonah tells an amazing story using the same approach. The book of Jonah is meant to shock its readers into critical and formative self-reflection. It's meant to shock its readers into a kind of self-reflection. So Jonah is like a, a mirror. It, it reads us as we read it. It illuminates all the emotions, the fears, the joys, the situations, everything we see in Jonah. It might also be present in our life. And so remember, Jonah is a prophetic book. Jonah is written to a Jewish audience. It assumes that the reader will make linguistic and cultural connections that we as modern Western readers, sometimes we can miss. And so right from the very first verse, Jonah, son of Amittai, is introduced to us, and his name starts to set the stage for how Jonah is meant to work. His name sets the stage. If you're uh, following your outline, this would be your first observation. Jonah's name sets the stage. Did you know that Jonah, son of Amittai, means Jonah, the son of faithfulness? Jonah, the son of trustworthiness, the one who proves to be firm, right? The faithful one. This is what Jonah's name means. It's in the first verse of the book. And so we've read the story. We know the story. Jonah is anything but faithful, When he hears God's word in chapter 1, contrast him to the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John in the New Testament. Remember, in the New Testament, you have these four guys. They're fishing. They can't catch anything all night. They're cleaning their nets. And then Jesus comes, walks by and says, hey, you know what you guys should do? You should try fishing and drop your nets on the other side of your boat. And they're like, well, we were just fishing. This is our job, but... Okay, and Peter takes his boat out. They go, they drop their lines. The, the net fills with fish. And they have to call the other boat out. And then both of them, both boats together, come back to the shore. Huge draft of fish. It's breaking their nets. And then at the end of the story, Jesus speaks to them and says, follow me. And they respond by dropping everything to follow Jesus, including the most incredible catch of fish that they've ever seen. They drop everything. Think about all the money they've just left on the table. Biggest catch they've ever had. They're fishermen. This is their livelihood. Enormous catch. But they leave it to follow Jesus. The four disciples hear Jesus' call, and they drop everything. Well, Jonah, the son of faithfulness, he does the exact opposite. 
Have you ever made this connection? Jonah, he hears the command to go to Nineveh, and he's like, nope, not about that life. He heads to the other side of the world, to Tarshish, to southern Spain. And when he hears the word of the Lord, he actually tries to run away from God. Drop everything and follow? Not a chance. He picks up and heads to Spain for the express purpose. Verse one, or chapter 1, verse 3 tells us he's going to flee from the presence of God. Forsaking his name and embodying the opposite of faithfulness that he is meant to look like, Jonah personally bankrolls a trip to Tarshish. So when we read that, it's not like he hopped on a ferry. He didn't pay a fare for one and then take a ship down. He gets there. There's no ship. And it has to, most scholars would argue that he paid for himself, for a full crew, and for a boat to leave that day from Joppa to Tarshish. He actively spends money running away from God. The exact opposite of the disciples who leave the money on the table. Can you feel the irony? Can you recognize the pointedness of the humor? This is how Jonah is meant to speak to us. The word within the words. There's playfulness here. Jonah's name sets the stage. Jonah, the son of faithfulness. But once the stage is set, the irony gets even more pronounced. First, Jonah's name sets the stage. Second, Jonah gets upstaged. Second, Jonah gets upstaged. So Jonah and his hired crew, they set sail from Joppa to Tarshish, and suddenly a storm starts raging. And now think about what the text tells us about the actions of Jonah and the actions of the sailor. Jonah falls asleep. And when things get crazy, he asks to be thrown overboard. He's doing everything he can to avoid his call by trying to end his life by being thrown overboard. Catch this. His disdain for Nineveh is so great that he would rather die than deliver a message to Nineveh. To his enemies. Jonah, the son of faithfulness, does the exact opposite of what God has called him to do. Meanwhile, the text attaches a couple key verbs to the sailors. If you go back and look through chapter 2, the sailors are told or said to have done this. They honor God. They make sacrifices on Jonah's behalf. They make vows to God. The text even says that the sailors worshipped the Lord. Are we following this? Again, who's faithful when they are passing through the storm? Certainly not Jonah, the son of faithfulness. Rather, the story presents pagan sailors as being truthful and acting faithfully. So in contrast, Jonah, one of Israel's prophets, 
one who is derived from a line known for their faithfulness and trustworthiness doesn't live up to his name and instead gets upstaged. Are we starting to see how the book of Jonah is satirically critiquing its intended audience? Again, it's a Jewish audience. This happens all throughout the book. There's so many things we could stop at and look at. But one final observation here. If you have your Bibles, everyone take a look at Jonah 3.3. It's Jonah 3, verse 3. So if you're there, Jonah 3.3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, jo- now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. In your Bible, you might notice that there's a footnote on now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Does anyone see that? Give me a nod if you see that. Couple, okay. The Hebrew here is tricky because there's a play on words that doesn't just translate well into English. And this happens all throughout the book. But here is a great example of it. You see, it is fair to translate that Nineveh is an exceedingly great city. It's fair to do that. But also, as many Bibles will note in the footnote, it's also totally fair to translate it as Nineveh was a great city to God. Or Nineveh was a great city of God. Translators have wrestled with this Hebrew for ages. How are you supposed to convey the double meaning from the Hebrew language into English? How do you do that? It's challenging. If you want to talk specifically about the Hebrew, we can drill down. Catch me later. We can talk about that. It all has to do with like the adding of an adjective and the change of a tense. But essentially, here's what's happening. Jonah, the son of faithfulness, refuses to go to the exceedingly great city of Nineveh. But at the same time, the author reminds the audience that Nineveh is a great city to God. What's another way of saying this? We've all heard this before. God holds the whole world in his hands. Nineveh receives God's grace. Nineveh is known by God. This is our third observation. Nineveh is known by God. You see, Jonah looks at Nineveh and he wants nothing to do with Nineveh. All he sees is evil. It's what Jack sketched during our first week when we looked at this. Nineveh and the Assyrians were brutal to their neighbors. The historical accounts are like horror movies. I don't watch horror movies. It's not my scene, but like it's really, really bad things. But here in the text, the author reminds us that God wants everything to do with Nineveh just as much as he wants everything to do with Jonah. Nineveh is an exceedingly great city, a great city 
that God cares for. So three observations. Jonah's name sets the stage. Jonah gets upstaged. And Nineveh receives God's grace. Nineveh is known by God. Is this starting to make sense? If this was a class, we'd spend more time here. But what we've talked about for the last 10 minutes, here's our data set, right? How did the book of Jonah get its message across to us just now in these three examples? What's the process? Well, one, the book of Jonah paints a picture that is filled with irony, humor, play, absurdity, It's prophetic literature written to a Jewish audience. And then it gets to us, it speaks to us by exposing our biases. It gets to us through irony, through humor, through all these things. It gets to us by exposing our biases. It gets at us by exposing our own hypocrisy. It presents scenarios that we read and think, huh, I'd never do something like that. Or, that's silly. Why is he doing that? And then when we stop and think about it, we realize, oh wait, I'm not that far off from Jonah, actually. Jonah's life is kind of like mine in this particular situation. The book highlights our own blind spots and it shows us our own absurdity. So it asks probing questions that cut through all the carefully crafted images that we work so hard to maintain. And it gets to us, it gets to us at our very core. It lulls us with light-hearted banter and then actually asks us to meditate on the challenge from the text. Consider the three moments we looked at and look at how the challenge from these moments hit us in the present day. We may be lifelong Christians, people of faith, children of faithfulness. But are we living faithfully? Do we live up to our name? When we hear God's call, are we like the disciples or are we like Jonah? Do we drop everything and follow God? Do we run away from God? If asked, if asked, would we leave money on the table in faithful obedience? Or would we spend money in faithful or unfaithful disobedience? Things just got real, right? It was funnier when it was just about the book. It's not funny now. What about this? Are our actions and responses in the middle of storms shown up by people who don't even claim to be Christian? Like, is the fruit of people outside of Christianity better than the fruit of people who claim Christ as Lord? Have other people in your life, in my life, 
people who aren't Christian done a better job of practicing what I preach. In my tradition, this right here, this moment, is called meddling. I'm meddling with y'all. Jonah isn't a story about a man and a fish. Drill down into the story, and it is troubling, it is challenging, it is convicting. Last one. Consider this. When we look at Nineveh, do we see a city that is exceedingly great in its wickedness? Or do we see a great city that God cares for? When you look at Nineveh in your life, Nineveh as a place, Ninevites as people, what do you see? And when you look at your enemy, what do you see? Are you able to imagine that God loves them as much as he loves you? Make no mistake, we all know, if you've lived even a little bit, you know, this can get really difficult when we actually need to put it into practice. This is not an easy word. This isn't an easy children's story anymore. Is everyone following? These are the kinds of questions that Jonah is asking us this morning. And they're certainly not the only ones either. What is God bringing to mind for you right now? And how is God speaking to you? What is God exposing within you and to you through this story? I know it's a little unorthodox, but in this moment, we're going to take 45 seconds to sit with these questions. Let us not move too quickly here. We just took a big bite. Key in and write down. Or take mental notes. Write on your phone. Meditate and pray. Whatever you're thinking about right now, Guess what? That might just be the prompting of God. It might just be. And so, if you would, we'll take 45 seconds and meditate on what God is bringing to mind in this moment. 45 seconds. Let's start.
time. Everyone okay? So imagine Washington, D.C., September 12th, 2001. You wake up shaken by the events that had occurred the day before. In disbelief, you are bombarded with news about terrorist attacks in your country. And as the dust is literally settling in New York, you find yourself reading a legal document that's been placed on your, on your desk, addressed to you, Congresswoman Barbara Lee, with the title, The Authorization for Use of Military Force. You read it, and immediately you are flooded with questions and thoughts. Yes, whoever did this is going to pay. But what are the terms of this policy? Who has the power to wage war in this country? What is this proposal really asking for? Would it be better to show unity with the rest of Washington, even if I'm undecided about this bill? What does the country need right now? Over the next few days, you spend time reading revisions of this document. You field calls from concerned citizens. You do interviews, visiting those in need. You hear that the Senate has voted on the AUMF with 98 eyes, two non-votes, and zero nays. You are still undecided. You feel the Spirit compel you to go to the Washington National Cathedral for the memorial service. And so you mourn, you pray, you listen, you reflect. And at one point in the service, the battle hymn of the Republic is played and you are wretched with emotion. Your father served in two wars. You are a a military kid. And yet you are still unsure about your vote. Congress gathers to vote on the AUMF, the 60 words that will give the president the authority to use whatever means necessary to wage war on terror. You sit and observe as congressperson after congressperson stands up and voices their support of this resolution until the House Speaker calls out, Gentlewoman from California is recognized for a minute and a half. It is your turn to speak. Mr. Speaker, members, I rise today really with a very heavy heart, one that is filled with sorrow for the families and the loved ones who were killed and injured this week. Only the most foolish and most callous would not understand the grief that has really gripped our people and millions across the world. This unspeakable act on the United States has really, really forced me, however, to rely on my moral compass, my conscience, and my God for direction. September 11th changed the world. Our deepest 
fears now haunt us. Yet I am convinced that military action will not prevent further acts of international terrorism against the United States. This is a very complex and complicated matter. Now, this resolution will pass, although we all know that the president can wage war even without it. However difficult this vote may be, some of us must urge the use of restraint. Our country is in a state of mourning. Some of us must say, let's step back for a moment. Let's pause for just a minute, a minute and think through the implications of our actions today so that this does not spiral out of control. Now, I have agonized over this vote, but I came to grips with it today. And I came to grips with opposing this resolution during the very painful yet very beautiful memorial service. As a member of the clergy so eloquently said, as we act, let us not become the evil that we deplore. You yield the rest of your time, And when all is said and done, the resolution passes the Senate and the House, 518 ayes, 12 non-votes, and one nay. In the following days, weeks, months, years, you are criticized for your decision. Yet, as war rages on and the AUMF is cited with increasing frequency over the next decade, some start wondering whether or not the written law, is serving the land well. Eighteen years on, you still feel that despite what everyone said at and about Congresswoman Barbara Lee, you advocated for the right thing. We started the day by reading Jonah 3, which details Nineveh's repentance. Everyone from every echelon of society, animals, people, everyone in the city has turned to the Lord. And then we get to the beginning of chapter 4. And we read the following words in Jonah 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. The repentance displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. One more time. Let's review the process for reading Jonah. What do we know? Jonah is written to a Jewish audience. It's prophetic literature. Prophetic literature operates by causing us to read our lives through the things that are provoked by the text. And in the case of Jonah, this happens to be irony, illusion, satire, shock, And this is what we know about the book of Jonah. We've seen examples of how the prophetic voice of God operates in this book. So when we get to 4 verse 1, I hate to break it to us, but like we saw before, most English translations flatten this verse out and take away all the irony in the text. If you looked at it, Does everyone see the word displeased, right? Jonah, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Your translation might also say he was depressed or he was dejected. 
there's probably a footnote beside that word in your Bible. And if there is, it will probably point out that the Hebrew for this verse can be translated, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah and he was angry. But also, here's the irony. Here's the play on words. When Jonah sees Nineveh repent, he interprets their repentance as an injustice and an evil. And in Hebrew, the same root that the book started with when it said Nineveh was a wicked and evil city is now being used to describe Jonah. As a result of his response to God's grace that's given to his enemies. Like, we can't overlook this. The author of Jonah starts by calling Nineveh an evil city. And then in chapter 4, comes full circle. And when Jonah can't stomach that God cares about the Ninevites, he says that Jonah is evil. By the end of the book, Jonah has become the evil that he deplores. The author uses the exact same verbiage for the evils of Nineveh and the evils of Jonah. Do we see what is happening here? In his indignation, the narrator, the narrator of the story shows us that Jonah has stopped and has stooped to be no better than the people who have been his oppressor. This is not an easy word. And like Barbara Lee, that word rings true. May we not become the evil that we deplore. Have you ever been like this? Have you ever been like Jonah? Have you ever become the evil that you deplore? I know I have. And how is Jonah reading you this morning? Is there a situation, a job, a relationship that you faced? Maybe you're facing right now. And in your response to very real injustice, it's not papering over that, very real injustice, you've become the evil that you hate. You don't know how it's happened, but you've been filled with bitterness and you don't recognize the person you see in the mirror anymore. What is God bringing to mind? Key in and write down what you're thinking. Use a pen, use your phone. Because that might just be the prompting of God. I do need to mention, wishing for someone to receive the grace of God doesn't negate our use of living with wisdom. Right? So wisdom and grace always go hand in hand. The narrator describing Nineveh and Jonah after his response as both evil does not mean that we shouldn't exercise wisdom when we come face-to-face -face with evil or face-to-face -face with our oppressor. And so, just so we're not mincing words, especially in cases of abuse or trauma, the grace that you're called to offer is sometimes, 
and often grace given from a distance. You're not being unfaithful if you're offering grace from a distance. Grace and wisdom, again, go hand in hand. So don't mishear me. When we're talking about Jonah becoming the very evil that he hates from Nineveh, we're speaking in a particular context and applying that generally. But the question rings true. Have you ever become the evil that you deplore? I was reminded of a quote from Walter Wink yesterday that made me think about the crux of Jonah's failures as a prophet, where it all centers. Wink says, Love of enemies has, for our time, become the litmus test of authentic Christian faith. Love of enemies is the recognition that the enemy, too, is a child of God. Do you believe this? And even more importantly, do we live this? Do we live this? As the band prepares to come up, Adam's going to play for a few moments before we end our morning in song. I don't know how God has been at work in your hearts this morning. I do know this. God is here. God loves you. God delights in you. God wants to commune with you. Obey the Lord today. And let God work on you. If you would like someone to pray with you, Andrew's here, ready and willing to pray with you to pray for you, to just listen, to intercede on your behalf. Friends, respond to God's word with obedience this morning. There's no ABC or action step um, that we'll leave us with. Nothing fancy. Just faith that God is already working on us and faith that God will meet us exactly how we need to be met this morning. Let me pray for us, and then in a moment, we'll sing. Holy God, we are humbled by your grace. And we're even more humbled when we reflect on the ways that we can be better at extending that grace we've received. Lord, be near to us as we soak in this moment. Speak to us and meet us. Bring to mind the realities of our lives. And take your word and your life from pages in a book about a story with man and a fish 
and transform this story to read us, work prophetically in our lives, to make us more like you, to form us into your image. Be made new in our lives this morning. And may we encounter you. We pray this with Christ by the Spirit. Amen.